Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Michelle Westmoreland. Uh, Michelle lives in the Pacific Northwest. Michelle Westmoreland is, a, is an American photographer who specializes in underwater and cultural photography. Uh, her work has been published and can be seen in uh, such magazines as National Geographic, Traveler, and Adventure. She's a fellow in the International League of Conservation Photographers, and actually, you founded that organization, I believe. And I was you're one of the participants. Well, you're being modest. <laughs> and uh, also a member at the prestigious Explorers Club. 2011, Michelle was inducted into the Women Divers Hall of Fame. She's a world traveler, passionate conservationist. Uh, I can go on and on about uh, the awards and things you've done, but very, uh, very impressive. I'm glad that you'd uh, join us, Michelle. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much, Michael. I, I appreciate uh, all your kind words. And yeah, it's the, it's the conservation and culture that drives me in the marine life. There's so much, but thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The um, photography, what got you started in photography? You know, <clears throat> even before I learned how to scuba dive, I was always fascinated and loved uh, photography as a hobby when I lived in Northern California. And uh, so I had my own little dark room because uh, that was, was the day of film and really enjoyed that. I was I really connected with taking photos. And uh, the sport of the day for me in Northern California was, was skiing. But I had to give that up when I was recruited and moved to Miami, Florida for a new uh, corporate job. Once I got underwater, that was it. Picked up an underwater camera and I just continued on. And then you left the corporate life and built a, uh, a really nice career as a, uh, as a photographer. How'd that come about? You know, I, I was really, when you look at it, I, I was extremely fortunate to um, be able to make a living. It was a time period when visual content was, had a value placed on it. So that was fortunate. I think the corporate background gave me some experience so that I could, I knew I didn't want to read 100-page lease documents the rest of my life, but it helped me to build a business plan. So utilizing those skills, I started working on that business plan. It took me about five years so that I could step out of, of corporate life and into making uh, a good living in photography. Now, a couple of conversations we had before today, it seems like there's, um, there's, there's a place and there's a person that's greatly affected, I think, your life in, in, many, in many regards. Place is Papua New Guinea, and the, the person is a, uh, 
painter by the name of Carolyn, is it Mertinger? Mertinger? Meitinger. Meitinger. That's how you pronounce it. Yes. Let's first talk about Papua New Guinea. That's uh, for us here in the States. That's on the far side of the world. What, what led you to Papua New Guinea? Well, I've been diving um, a lot in the Caribbean. I got a chance to go to places like Palau uh, before I really got to kick off my career. And in the early 1990s, I was looking for a place that people were talking about but wasn't really known. And in the dive industry and at the various uh, dive shows, uh, the, the name Papua New Guinea kept coming up. So I did more research and I said, yeah, that's where I want to go. And my first trip there in the early 1990s in, included motorized canoeing down the Sepik River, going to Rabal, and then spending time at Walindi Plantation Resort and on board the Fabrina. When I saw the marine life there, uh, I just, that, and just the spectacular island nation, that was it. I was hooked. The island itself lies just north of Australia. How long does it take to get there? <laughs> Depends on what direction you fly. I tend to go through Australia. By the time I get out to the remote areas, it could be up to 36 hours, you know, with all the flight changes or waiting and stuff. So it's, it's a long trek, but it's well worth it. Oh, yeah. The reefs there that first attracted you to Papua New Guinea? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I went back um, several times following that to explore different territories of diving locations, uh, such as um, the Gulf of Papua, uh, even in Bootless Bay, which is right the harbor right next to the capital city of Port Moresby, over to Milne Bay Province, Tufi, and every single one of those territories just you know, was the most, the highest numbers of biodiversity in the marine life that I've ever known. And I developed some very strong friendships. So I, I continued to go back and back. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the reefs. You put on your dive gear, you got your dive mask on, you descend into the water from the surface. Describe for people as you're diving down on that reef, what do you see? Well, they're all different. They all have their own structure and, um, and the different balmies depending on the currents and tides and, and what's there. But for me, jumping in the water is a place of peace. Uh, I'm, I am most comfortable at about 60 feet on average just blowing bubbles and taking photos and observing. And it really is. It settles me down. And Many people haven't had the privilege of, of diving on a pristine reef. Describe that form for what, what you see there. Well, I can give an example, uh, like right in Kimby Bay, uh, diving on one of like Susan's Reef, which is known for its red whip corals. And oh my goodness, these red whip corals just go up the side of the balmy. And even within these magical coral strands, you'll see pipefish, you see razorfish. It's unending. 
And then the rest of the hard coral structure is very good too. And, and living within that can be a variety of, of just intriguing animals. Some of the other balmies are known for their schooling. They don't have quite the colorful kind of uh, soft corals, but above it could be just some incredible, magnificent schools of barracuda, jacks, batfish. And so when they're swirling all around your head, that's, it's pretty magical. Now, I live uh, a little bit south of you, but which unfortunately means the diving that I have to get to do is all cold water. I've had a few times to get out on uh, warm water reefs, but the, the color difference and the visibility are things that always struck me. How'd that, how'd that look there? Well, you know, I mean, I'm not a cold water diver. I'm, I'm a wimp. Uh, I, I think I get teased more about that than anything, especially when you have almost 4,000 dives. And, um, you know, I live here in Seattle. The Pacific Northwest has some amazing environments, you know, with the giant octopus and, and just, you know, incredible stuff. It's just not my thing. So I, I retreat back to the warmer water situations, uh, you know, along the equator and, and the, especially the Coral Triangle. Again, it provides so much biodiversity. Uh, the visibility is, is definitely, it's, it's up or down like anything. Depends on the currents, depends on, you know, what is happening. If there's a lot of rainfall and there's outflow from, from the islands, that can impact the visibility. But yeah, I've, you know, I've been to Solomon Islands, more particularly Papua New Guinea, 36 times. And it just, it just still, there's always something new. What's the uh, strangest or most interesting uh, life, fish or otherwise, that you've seen there? Oh, my goodness, you ask hard questions. Uh, I think the most exciting and something that just boggled my mind was was in 1997 uh was diving in Kimby Bay off one of the uh, dive skiffs from the resort and when we surfaced from that particular dive uh I was one of the first to come up and I got back on the skiff and the captain and I looked out and we saw these dorsal fins and said, what in the world is going on? So we kind of banged on the, the ladders, got all the rest of the divers up, and we headed out towards where we were seeing these dorsal fins. And it was mind-boggling because it was a transient pod of orcas that do happen to come into Kimby Bay once or twice a year. And they were hunting. And so I grabbed my camera, you know, took the strobes off because I was ha would have to snorkel. And I just set up and got in the water quickly. And, and the orcas took off. But what was there was about seven female sperm whales. And the orcas were hunting the sperm whales. So I got about four minutes or so of just total, complete awe, bliss, um, my heart pumping in seeing seven sperm whales. Yeah, you never know when those opportunities come. You don't. You just don't. It can surprise you. And, it, and I've only seen that experience once in my you know, diving career. 
then there's the small stuff. I mean, there was the race to find the newest species. And one time in, in Milne Bay, there were uh, two liveaboard dive vessels out there. I was on one and uh, another Actually, someone who I always looked at as a mentor is, a, is who an inspiration, and that's Chris Newbert, uh, who produced a couple of very incredible uh, books. And he used to go to Papua New Guinea quite a bit, but we were on different boats. And so we were on the look for because one of the uh, dive guides and captains said that they had found a hairy octopus. Now, what in the heck is that? A hairy octopus? A hairy octopus. And trust me, they don't get much bigger than this. They're little. So we were on the hunt uh, for who was going to find the hairy octopus and get the the first photos. Uh, I won. It was great. So what did it look like? Does it does it have really have hair or? It's it's very. It has a lot of filament coming out from uh, from it, so it can disguise itself in um, kind of leafy, shallow areas. And they, they are tough to find. They are, it takes a darn good eye to spot one. And fortunately, uh, Rob Vanderloos, the owner and captain for the Share 10, uh, just, he's got a great eye for them. Nice. Yeah. Now, there's some, uh, some not-so-friendly uh, sea life there, too. Coral snakes and um, is it the lionfish? What's that fish that has all the spines on its back? <laughs> As a lionfish, uh, and you kind of learn to work around lionfish. They they ought, they belong in the Indo-Pacific. They have natural predators, um, so their numbers are kept in the right amount. Whereas the introduction of lionfish into the Caribbean and off the coast of Florida, they're completely invasive species and and dwindling the populations of endemic fish in the Caribbean. But in the Indo-Pacific, that's where they belong. Um, I've had them, if I've been on a night dive, a lot of times they're smart enough and my focusing lights that I have on my camera to look for creatures and things to photograph at night, I can turn around and there's one right by my head. He's using my lights to hunt for prey. And um, you you just want to... You want to be a little careful on how quickly you turn around or you don't want to swat it away because of the poisonous spines on it. They're, they're pretty smart, though. They'll utilize the lights. Yeah, I was diving uh, off the coast of Borneo and Ooh. saw one. And, uh, yeah, you just see those spines just out there waving around, just waiting for some unsuspecting. Yeah, they hurt like a son of a gun, too. That's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a bad day if you get uh, tagged by one. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's other the sharks don't bother me. Um, you know, if I see silver tips or reef sharks in any of the areas, they don't bother me in the least. I, I, I just take every moment and hope they keep getting closer and closer and in my frame. And they're wonderful. So you just have to know what species you're dealing with and, and if they're more or less aggressive. Um, I've seen silly people reach in to a very simple, usually sleeping uh, nurse shark, and you just don't do that. You don't reach out. You don't touch. You know, you leave as much alone as possible. Tell us about the people of Papua New Guinea. Well, 
Papua New Guinea is, you know, I spoke to the incredible diversity of marine life in uh, Papua New Guinea. Culturally, New Guinea is one of the most diverse places on the planet for their culture. Uh, There's 850, this kind of dwindling now on the languages, but 850 separate languages that have been spoken in New Guinea. That's in just Papua New Guinea, which is the size of California. So imagine going from one territory to another where the clans and various tribes speak different languages. So that's, you know, incredible, along with their, you know, traditional practices and, and dress, ceremonial dress. Uh, again, they're, they're all unique. When you're walking through those environments and, and you come upon a, a village, mm-hmm. what would we see? What, what do they look like? Well, it depends on if you're coast, you know, walking along and going into villages along the coastline, which are very different. Uh, than the highland territories. And uh, if you take a look at the map, you'll see there is some really incredible geography for that island. It has a mountain that is snow-capped right next, you know, just below the uh, the equator. So it goes to 14,000 feet, which is mind-boggling. The terrain, I'm not an anthropologist, so I don't um, make these I, I can only run them around in my brain a little bit, but if you see that kind of terrain differences, those huge mountains and the valleys and, and where different, you know, people set up their own tribes and communities, you can understand why that isolation may be one of the reasons why they have so many different languages. What do their homes look like? For the most part, they use, um, you know, the natural environment. So you'll have the different, you know, different types of vegetation that's used for roofs, different vegetation, and that used for the walls. Some of it's called pick-pick. You know, some are on stilts higher off the ground than in summer, some other areas, depending on if it's coastal or Sepik River, for example, because the Sepik and the Fly River territories are both delta areas. And so those water levels can go up and down. And so a lot of those are structures are put up at a higher level because of the water. So it's, each one can have its own structure. They can be kind of a circular hut to square hut. And, and today you'll see a lot of villages who use tin roofs and things like that because they last longer. Now, you took part in an expedition which was going to trace Carolyn's trip and what she did there. Yeah. Who is Carolyn? Caroline Meininger. First of all, this is how I discovered her, is this book right here. It's called New Guinea Headhunt. Oops, you can't see it. This is the book that was given to me by a neighbor friend of my, of my parents, uh, who was, I went to say my goodbyes to Marie. And she had this beautiful book on, on the shelf. She had a gorgeous little library. And she handed me this book called New Guinea Headhunt by Caroline Meidinger. And she says, uh, I know how much you love that part of the world. And I think there's a bit of you in here. It took me, took me a couple months to read through the book. But once I did, I, I just went seriously. 
Caroline and a friend, a female friend, Margaret Warner, traveled to the Solomon Islands and New Guinea at the time. It was broken up through the German, the British, uh, and the Dutch. Uh, traveled to these, these far-off locations between 1926 and 1930. So that just, you know, set me off. Now, the books were given to me, and then I discovered that Caroline had a, a book that was actually published before New Guinea Headhunt, and that is called Headhunting in the Solomon Islands. So there that is. Um, these are books that I carried on the expedition, so that's hence all the, the note pages. And I just couldn't let it go because I already started from my trips previously there and, and continuing on, became so attached and wanted to learn and know more about the people, you know, because it wasn't all about the fish. And the fish are fabulous. It's, it's incredible, but the people are incredible too. Um, and the landscapes. And then when I found out about Carolyn, I decided, you know what, this is a story that needs to be told because here was an American female artist who basically went forgotten for a variety of reasons. And um, so I felt a passion to tell that story and, and connect myself in ways that I never thought it could connect me. And Carolyn, she went there, if I understand it correctly, she was just painting all the, the locals to, I guess, sort of capture and preserve what, uh, what their culture was. Is that uh, your understanding? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty basic thing. Back in the early 20th century, of course, there are, and as you read through and, you know, the reasons for, for people going to various places to look at culture and paint them or whatever, um, and today would be kind of looked at differently as, as it was in the early 20th century. But the fact that she, she, when you read the books and after I really started researching who, who was Caroline, you know, what was, you know, tried to get my arms wrapped around and my head wrapped around. What was she thinking about that? Why was she going there? What did she really want to return with? And if you watch the documentary film, you'll see the transition that she went on and which was having one opinion. She was going to go, you know, paint these people and, you know, and of course, terms and words back then used are, are not favorable today. But when she came home and really, really understood the people she was painting, their portraits, she captured them one with pride and dignity. And that's one thing that I really appreciated hearing from my Papua New Guinean friends, you know, who, who've always been kind of telling me, Michelle, no, you're wrong. You need to learn this. You need to learn that. But they all came to fall in love with Caroline's paintings because of the pride and dignity. So that being said, what did she come home with? She came home with just saying, we're all just people. And I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. You know, we're not, we're just one and the same. So I think that's the lesson she learned while she was over there and the lessons I continue to learn, because trust me, I know a grain of salt about the, um, the people and the culture and the history, just a grain of salt. Well, let's go to your expedition. 
Mm-hmm. I call it expedition because it, uh, I think of it as an expedition, but it was also the making of a documentary film that she did that she just mentioned, the uh, Headhunt Revisited. With brush, canvas, and camera, which is the tagline to the documentary film. So, because it's about art, you know, it was, it was her play on words when she titled her books that Headhunt Revisited. She was going to capture her heads on canvas. And of course, back in those days, headhunting was still a practice. And of course, it was reviled by the colonialists. And, you know, many were incarcerated or that for their practices. But she just wanted to utilize that as kind of a play on words. Let me circle back to the making of the documentary and your expedition there. My favorite subject, Caroline. Yeah. Well, not, but not only Caroline, but you and your crew. When you went there, because you had a, you wanted to retrace her footsteps, see the impact. And what did you learn as you as you went through that that expedition, that experience? It was. There were moments of joy. There were moments of frustration. There, um, there were a lot of times my cameraman would take me to the bow of the boat and go, Michelle, you need to, you know, stay out of, keep your flash off when I'm filming. There's just, you know, I mean, you spend two and a half months on a 72 foot liveaboard dive boat, you know, it's going to have its challenges, but the rewards were, you know, so incredible. And it was the Fabrina and Captain Alan Raby, who is like a big brother to me. And the owners of Walindi Plantation, Max and Cecily Benjamin, who have always been like family to me ever since the first time I, I went there in the early 90s. But boarding the Fabrina, you know, that was like the little home for me. But what did we have to do prior to that? Oh, my goodness. First of all, we had to map, uh, a properly map where Caroline traveled. So... A gentleman by the name of Dickie Doyle, he um, was a fourth generation plantation owner. Uh, His family originated from Australia, but he was born in Rabal. And uh, but he knows the history. He knew the history. So at that time, I had to photocopy both books and send them over to to Dickie because he lives in a remote place called the Weetus. And so that he could study them. And it took him eight months or more to really identify the locations where Caroline went. Because even from her books, the spelling of the village names could be different. Um, so, but who better to know than, than Dickie Doyle? I mean, that that's, was his territory. So once we had that, we had to pick the time of year that would be best for weather purposes, you know, filming purposes, so it was, it was a major project to put together, number one. I was fortunate enough to carry an Explorers Club flag, uh, Wings World Quest flag, and a Society of Women Geographers flag on the expedition. That was pretty cool. But just boarding the, the Fabrina, in, we boarded in Rabal and then went directly over to the Solomon Islands uh, and started working our way down through the various areas crossed back over to one of the most remote islands in in Papua New Guinea, which is called the Rossel Islands. 
and just working up the Louisiana Archipelago. I mean, it was just, it was mind boggling. What was our, what were some of our challenges? Well, I like what a really respected scientist says, Edie Witter. And, you know, she says, you know, success in life is when you uh, complete plan B. Anyone can do plan A. And she was absolutely right because we had to go to plan B when we could not go to the Fly River Territory as Caroline did because we weren't going to cross the Gulf of Papua in a 72-foot boat in 15-foot seas. Just no way. Uh, it was far too dangerous. And so we had to go look at it and change some plans. But then there was the joy. Even Captain Allen had to retreat into his bridge when we first met one of the first paintings and the descendants to one of the subjects in the paintings, and that was Morova Lagoon family. And meeting Terry and Ujaya, the sons of the young man who appears in that painting, uh, was really quite emotional. We didn't, we had no clue we would meet any descendants. And I want to pick that up because there was also, I believe, one part where there was a gentleman who had always heard stories that his mother or grandmother had been painted. And he always wanted to know more about her and about that, that painting. That was Owala Massey. And Owala is from Hanabata, which is outside uh, the capital city of Port Moresby. And his grandmother was in one of the paintings. And when we went to see him, you know, the culture there is not really, you know, they don't, unless they're grieving death, they don't sob a lot. But here was a Wallace sitting there with tears running down his cheeks in his, uh, his little home. And he says, my grandmother told me stories of this white woman coming and painting my picture which is, you know, in Tokpasi, and there's lots of interesting words that they use that are kind of derived from, from English and stuff. But he, he said, and I, I've always dreamed that someone would come tell me this story. So there we were, you know, spending time with Owala and his family and sharing the, uh, a print that I took to him um, as a gift of the painting. So, yeah, those are emotional. And then there was um, finding descendants to one of the signature paintings called Hera, the gentleman in the big headdress. Uh, uh, his name was Ohuya. And, um, you know, that was quite rewarding. But I think what's even more rewarding now is that this, this hasn't stopped. Yeah, we did the expedition in 2005. And couldn't get the film out until 2017 was when it was released, but it's a timeless story. And it's always, that history is always going to be important. And a year ago, I was contacted by an anthropologist in Australia from Melbourne University, and we discovered a descendant to a fifth painting. So, which is pretty cool. Why do you think her work had such an impact on those folks in, in Papua New Guinea? I mean, it obviously had just a deep, they had a deep connection to these paintings that she was doing. I mean, that was passed on for generations. What was it about it, do you think, that had such an impact? Yeah, I think Jeffrey Feger 
you know, I had to go through all different kind of changes myself. You know, Caroline had her struggles going on her expedition, getting things ready, um, storms, sickness. You know, there were a lot of things that impact her. When she came back, it was the Great Depression. Uh, then there was World War II. So there's kind of a, you know, a parallel thing that I wound up going through making the documentary. But I think Jeffrey Feger, who came into the storyline of the documentary film a little bit later in 2011 through 13, and I knew he had to be a part of it because he is Papua New Guinean and he is a contemporary portrait artist. And so who better to, to speak to that than uh, someone who does that? And, and he, I think he said it best when he was referring to, we haven't seen from that time period, they only got to see a lot of black and white photos and um, things like that, but none in color. And none with the beauty of the of the surroundings and the dignity and and the different you know color tones and reflections off the skin. So there was a lot that went into it. And yeah, I, I rely on Jeffrey. Yeah, it was a glimpse of them back, uh, I suppose, to their ancestors. Because you know, with the changing times, a lot of cultures are just losing that history that they had, and. Uh, I saw that in Guatemala, you know, a few years ago when I was down there. I was talking to some other folks. They had seen the same thing. But, yeah, just maybe it's that just, you know, us in the uh, in the U.S. and, you know, we're used to cameras. Everybody and his brother's got a, a camera with a cell phone. And so we were inundated with photographs. But you go back into the bush and there are people that don't have any photographs of them or their family. Um, not from the past, but I can tell you right now, I've. I've taken a photo of a great Hooli Wigman in full dress and, and a cell phone sticking out of his waist. <laughs> <laughs> it is. The times have changed. It, they really have. And, and you can't, not any, not, there isn't a culture around that stays stagnant. Everyone changes, you know, and then they reach back and then they change some more and, and reach back again. So providing, you know, sharing this kind of um, information is is many of the people people can make their own changes. Do they use the same materials exactly that they did a hundred years ago to do their um, their ceremonial dress? Not necessarily. You know, I've seen modern things in there or tinted feathers that are not you know from the typical bush birds or birds of paradise. So we all, we all do change, and, um, but there's times and a lot of the communities are reaching back to, to look at their culture and, and re, you know, just pulling together and celebrating it, which is great. Now, how did, and I'm making an assumption here, but how did that expedition and the making of that documentary, how did it affect you? It changed me in more ways than one. I just, I, I, I love the ocean. The ocean is my, I'm all about ocean conservation. But what I was seeing, you know, in, in the ocean and some of the, and the problems of today and climate change and how it's impacting reefs and impacting and overfishing and all of that, what I 
really connected with uh, from learning from the expedition and, and tying into people and humanity was that it's, it's, it's the people on those islands and coastlines that depend on the health of the ocean to survive. So that connection, there's no way I could separate and just be focused on marine life without caring about the human connection. That's now, just all there is to it. Now, there was a photograph you shared with me mm-hmm. that, uh, and, and admittedly, I had to pry it out of you a little bit, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's of a little girl. Tell us what's, what does that photo depict and how did you come about to be able to make that photograph, that image? You know, it was, it's like seeing, you, you know when you get the shot or know when something feels. Um, it's like, okay, just when I was in the water with those sperm whale, you know, how did I feel? How did I, I was on a dive in Melm Bay province and all of these things about the human connection had been, you know, circling through and going through my brain because of the expedition and the documentary film project. But I was diving Milne Bay province. I surfaced from a dive. I did my safety stop and, and I could see all these canoes above me. And I went, oh, that's cool. I had my big camera system. And when I surfaced, there was a mother and a child in an outrigger canoe. And it just hit me seeing that child with the vegetables in the, in the front of the canoe. Her mother was there and it was like, I just knew that was it. Now, how did I get it? It was, it was a bit challenging. It was called inflate my BC had to, you know, I asked permission of the mother if I could take the photo and she agreed. And then I set up the little girl at first did not have a clue of what this what they call long, long dim dim. That's a crazy <laughs> white person in talk to see. <laughs> yeah. Coming from the denizens of the deep up. Exactly. And so what I did is in the, the way um, the canoe was facing in that, I set my strobes, which are out on arms, up on the outrigger so I could light the child's face and then raise my, my housing and my camera and took a series of photos. And of course, the ones before and after that particular shot, you can see this child going, what? What is this? So, but I knew when I snapped the one where she was, had that nice smile, that's it. And that was, you know, we all have, as photographers, we kind of have signature shots. And that was the signature shot that represented, um, for me, you know, a change in the connection between the ocean and, and the humanity. Can you imagine the story that that little girl is going to be telling her granddaughter or grandson about the time that this <laughs> crazy creature <laughs> ascended from the deeps with some contraption with arms sticking out, flashing lights? Yeah. Yeah, the kids, the, the kids in a variety of areas who have not experienced there's there's some of the children along the piers and, and uh, the wharfs and that they're used to seeing uh, long, long dim-dims, you know, with diving and scuba gear. And so they'll dive down and look at you. But this was the first time for this little girl to have that kind of experience. And 
for me, it was, it was pr- pretty darn special. The evolution of your outlook, it evolved from the focus of, like I say, just the incredible biodiversity of those reefs and the challenges to them now to now that connection with the people. How is that leading you now to what you're doing? Wow. What I want to do, what I, you know, I'm trying to do, obviously there's some, some things that I would like to work on a little bit more, but wow, there's just, there's a myriad of things that I am potentially that I'm working on right now that is inclusive and it goes back to art you know, art that spans oceans and decades. Caroline's art did just that, right? Photographs can do that. Paintings, carvings, it doesn't matter what media, um, medium it comes in, but art is extremely important. I mean, look at our museums. I mean, they're invaluable. So, but I've yet to see expressions, contemporary expressions of art um, celebrated that are done by Melanesians. So that's my next project. Who knows where that will go? No, you know, the, um, it, it's funny you say that because the, the preservation of the artistic history, I would think would, uh, like all the cultures need to be done. Uh, you know, I mentioned I was in Guatemala. One of the projects I was trying, I was doing is, uh, I became friends with one of the uh, the local villagers, and uh, he was a teacher. And he was lamenting to me about how the culture of his people, the Mayans up there in uh, the mm-hmm. highlands, was disappearing so fast. Yeah. And he told me the story that just a year or two before, um, this old woman had died, and she was the last practitioner of a uh, last um, musician that played a particular Mayan uh, musical instrument. And she was the last one when she died, all of that music and the the instrument itself disappeared. So we, yeah, we set up a, um, you know, I I got him some equipment to start recording. Uh, I have uh, here, my files are recording of some uh, traditional Mayan music by, by the, uh, the musicians that are still there, but it's, it's dying because Younger folks aren't as interested in learning how to do or how to play or even using those instruments. So when you say art, you know, that the history that's encapsulated in art, you know, needs to be preserved. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. It does. We also have to acknowledge that, um, again, things evolve and change. So. The loss of, of language is, is a huge thing. And um, Dr. Joshua Bell, has a, who appears in my film from the Smithsonian, also has some project that works on uh, languages. And there are several books that I have on. I have two shelves full of books on, you know, various uh, subject matter for Papua New Guinea and Melanesia. Um, but I just got done reading one that was in regards to the loss of a language um, that was pretty remote within Papua New Guinea. So, and they're trying to collect that information so that they can prever- pre- preserve it in some form or fashion. But it is a huge, huge thing to lose language, lose, um, lose those sense of identity. 
One last thing I want to ask you. You built a life for yourself of adventure following your passions. What would you say to people who are sitting in that cubicle? You know, they have their passions and they're just not yet, they just haven't yet stepped out to follow them. I mean, you did. What would you say to them? You have to go for it. You, you just have to go for it because I can't even imagine, even with all the hardships and frustrations that I had with the documentary film, they're not easy to put together. <sighs> the result, and, and there were times I was ready to walk away from the project. Case closed. You know, I'm done. I'm finished. I have no more energy. But I just, for some reason, and it's probably my, my dad, you know, kind of from out there kept pushing me along. And, yeah, there's just do it. Just do it. That's all I can say. You know, just work as hard as you can and, and start feeling. When you get one piece of research done and, you, and something raises your eyebrows, Go, you know, look at that as a success and then maybe take the next achievement to add on to it and go, oh, I just succeeded here. And so it's taking those steps. And then finally, when you're, as Caroline said, when she held her first little book of her own in her hands and I held the documentary film in my hands, there's nothing more rewarding. So... How can people find out more about you and about the film and about your future projects? Well, my, uh, my main photography site is westmorelandimages.com. And that's kind of a portfolio based. It, it shows a lot of the variety of photography that I do. Yes, I've done a lot of commercial work. Never say no to those things. Those things taught me a lot about lighting. So you'll see a, a pretty wide variety in the different portfolios of, of my work on Westmoreland images. But the film has its own website and it's called headhuntrevisited.org. That you can find out the motivation. You can read a little bit about Caroline. You can see there's some uh, trailers and clips that are available. And there's always a way to reach me if you have questions because uh, there's nothing more that I like than talking about the project. So, Very nice. Well, Michelle, thank you for sitting down and, uh, and sharing these stories with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. I All really right, and it. look forward to uh, seeing your work in the future. Great, great. And I'll keep you posted on the artwork. Excellent. Okay, Michael. Thank you. Right. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.